Welcome to the Ion Ryan Show, a satellite orbiting the worlds of tech, toys, pro wrestling, and pop culture. Here is your host, Ion Ryan. Hola amigos, and welcome to another episode of the Ion Ryan Show as a member of the We Pod Squad. Uh, <laughs> we're going to end today's show with an in-depth look at WWE's SummerSlam. Um, we're going to talk about the winners. We're going to talk about the losers. We're going to talk about some of the problems that WWE may be having right now and when we can expect a resolution to those problems. Uh, but without further ado, I want to get into our brand new feature, which we call Three Count. For those of you that are just tuning in for the first time, Three Count is basically one, two, three things that I've been thinking about, doing, watching, reading, listening to, just things that have been on my mind. So uh, let's get into it. It is now time for Iron Ryan's Weekly Three Count. So first up on Three Count is a little bit of a movie review for the film that just came out, Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. Uh, Now this is an adaptation of a book that was published in the 80s that many of uh, you folks that are 20, 30, 40 probably remember buying, reading around the campfire. Uh, It was an adaptation done by Guillermo del Toro. Uh, He wrote the film, although he did not direct it. It's currently sitting at 81% on Rotten Tomatoes. It had a respectable debut of $20 million at the box office uh, for the August 9th weekend. And I had an opportunity to see the film. Now, uh, what are my thoughts on it? Uh, I'm not going to say I'm disappointed, but 81% feels a little high. Now, I'm not going to try. I don't want to be a Nancy negative here, but I have fond memories of the scary stories to tell in the dark book. Uh, it was honestly the illustrations in that book that really got to me. They were so, they were harrowing, right? I love that word right now, harrowing. They were very bone chilling. They were these very, uh, I don't know anything about art, by the way. I'm not a fine artist, but they were these pencil or charcoal kind of things. They were very gray. They were obviously printed in black and white on the pages, and they just had this very spooky vibe to them. So if any book was primed for an adaptation, a visual adaptation, it was this book. Now, uh, I won't I won't put any spoilers out there for you. I will just tell you that they adapted a handful of stories. Now, going in, I wasn't sure if this was going to be one long story or if they were just going to borrow some 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 of the titles. Uh, you'll see how they did it. But basically, it's not an anthology, right? It's not 13 minutes followed by 10 minutes followed by 15 minutes, so on and so forth of individual stories. They kind of work their way through some of the scares that were made so famous in the books that that we read as kids. Now, uh, the one thing I struggled with in this film was the tone of it. And what I mean by that is it was a PG-13 movie. I wasn't aware of that going in. I heard Guillermo del Toro, and I was expecting, like, gore. See, because in the book, what they did was a lot of this stuff was kind of a cliffhanger, right? Where he say, and he opened the door, and and it's meant to be told around a campfire. 
where, you know, you could say he opened up the door and it was right behind him. (sighs) And everybody scares. And that's where the story would end in the book. Now, in the movie, I thought that maybe they would, knowing that they couldn't always go with a cliffhanger that went nowhere, that they would actually kind of say, and here's what happened, and here's the bloodshed. And I'll be honest, I'm not even sure if there's like an F-bomb in this movie. I, blood, there's there's not a ton of blood. It's just, it's it's got that that gray, all of the, all the scares in the film kind of have that that, that artwork feel, right? Which, like I said, the artwork was this pencil or charcoal illustrations. Uh, it's got that same exact kind of vibe, which is cool. But, um, yeah, I just, it just, it felt oddly kid friendly. Uh, I'm not saying to take your eight year old to it, but I mean, if, if your kids saw it, you don't have to worry about them seeing anything that's wildly inappropriate. Um, it just is kind of a middle of the road where it, it's, it's a little spooky. There's some jump scares, but at the end of the day, there was nothing that really was overtly gruesome or inappropriate for that matter. Uh, the overall story, they took some creative liberties with that I enjoyed. Um, it just, like I said, they, they tell a straightforward story. They have a cast of characters, things happen. Uh, I find that to be. The way that they did it was, was relatively creative. But see, one thing I loved is that they based it in 1968. I don't know why they based it in 1968, but I believe we've mentioned on this podcast before that I really actually enjoy movies that are period pieces, a la It and, uh, of course, Stranger Things, which isn't a movie, but, you know, because... So much of horror movies in 2019 are, well, why don't they just Google it? Why don't they just take a picture? Why don't they just like tweet this out to the world and let them all know and let it go viral? Why don't they just text their friend or call them? And obviously the trope of, oh, we don't have reception is way overdone. So by setting a horror film in 1968, it, it alleviates a lot of those things, okay, where they don't have the internet, they don't have cell phones, they don't ha- even have pagers, they have to run places. They have to go places. They can't communicate with each other. Uh, so that that's a plus in the column. They, they said it in 1968. Uh, now, what is actually hard, and I just mentioned it and Stranger Things, is that it is a period piece based that has a teenage cast. And if I was to rank Stranger Things and it and scary stories to tell in the dark... Scary stories would come in last place. The characters aren't quite as likable. And uh, the action isn't quite as uh, interesting as it is in It and Stranger Things. So if you can kind of get out of there without comparing the three properties to one another, I, I think you'll enjoy it. Uh, but like I said, I was I was really surprised with Guillermo del Toro, who has done some really gruesome things. I mean, Pan's Labyrinth is a masterpiece. It is a subtitled film, uh, but if you if you've never seen it before, I cannot recommend it enough. Uh, I knew Guillermo del Toro was going to be a very special filmmaker uh, when I saw that film. I knew that this guy was going to do some amazing things. And what's interesting is once you do a couple amazing things in Hollywood, you do get a license to do whatever you'd like. 
and this project meant something to Guillermo del Toro, and and he ran with it. Uh, now, like I said, I want I looked at the reviews on on Rotten Tomatoes, where it's sitting at eighty one percent, and the critics really seem to enjoy it more than I did. Now, the conflict I had when I was leaving the movie was I couldn't even necessarily put my finger on what it is I didn't like. It was a solid story. There was nothing really all that boring. I mean, I would say maybe the first 20, 25, maybe even 30 minutes, uh, not much happens in the way of horror, but that actually works to its benefit in the fact that they're able to build up to the scares. You have this sense of dread that swells throughout the first 20 or 30 minutes of the film. Uh, and although you sign, you know you signed up for a horror movie, and that's why that dread builds. Uh, it's not predictability, it's inevitability. There's a difference there, and we should all appreciate that as an audience. Now, my thing is, uh, it actually reminded me a little bit of like Goosebumps, which again, uh, you know, so for those of you that don't know, I have the opportunity to teach high school, and it's really cool. And, and, and I show my students, these 17-year-old kids, like, oh, check out this movie. And they raise their hand like, Mr. Simmons, uh, that's not all that impressive. Every movie does that. I mean, for example, I think I showed them portions of The Shining and they were unimpressed. And I was like, no, 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 no. What you don't understand is The Shining was the first movie to do this. And the movies that you've seen since that they've stolen from The Shining, right? Those steady cam shots, the the sense of dread that they build with the, with the close-ups and so on and so forth. Like the composition, the, the way that they use the setting, like there was no movie like that before. So the fact that I'm saying that um, scary stories to tell in the dark actually reminds me a little bit of Goosebumps. You may say like, yeah, well, R.L. Stein was probably inspired by those stories. But what I'm actually really saying is that the movie Goosebumps and the storytelling methods that they use, there's some similarities with with scary stories to tell in the dark. And like I said, I just I thought I was going to say a R-rated movie where there was going to be like I'm not into a ton of gore, but there was almost none. Uh, and then, you know. That, that just, that was the expectation game, right? Where I had an expectation and I'm not going to say it wasn't met. It was just misunderstood. And that goes on me. Uh, so overall, not that I have a hardcore rating system, but I guess if I'm going to do some of these movie reviews, I probably should. Uh, I'll go ahead and give it a uh, 3.25 out of 5. Okay. It's definitely on this side of good saying, well, let's just say that good is usually three. Okay. Or Better yet, 2.5. Uh, it's definitely on this side of good because it's not a bad movie. It's just not quite great. So number two on three count, I want to talk about something that I didn't really get the chance to talk about uh, at length when I was looking back at San Diego Comic-Con. Uh, and although like Greg and Sam had a chance to talk about this on We Podcast and We Know Things, um, I'm a few episodes behind on them. I had said that I didn't want to get anything spoiled uh, for for any of the f- movies or shows that they've watched. So I was like, guys, I can't listen to the podcast yet. Uh, but I, I'm now just a week behind, I think. So um, uh, San Diego Comic-Con Phase 4. Uh, I'm sure you guys have all heard this list by now and what has what is coming out. But we're looking at um, the, announced, the announced films are... Um, Black Widow, 
uh, The Eternals, Shang-Chi, I believe. Is it Shang-Chi or Shang-Chi? We're going to go with Shang-Chi, and then you can all yell at me later. Uh, Doctor Strange 2, which is called Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. And finally, Thor, uh, Thor 4, uh, Love and Thunder. Now, those are five very interesting films. We also know that Black Panther and Guardians of the Galaxy 3 uh, will be coming out at some point in the next couple of years. Uh, but at San Diego Comic-Con, they also announced five shows. And those shows were, uh, the first one is Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Then they're doing WandaVision. Then they're doing Loki. What If, which is an animated film, a uh, TV show. And they're doing Hawkeye. So uh, what do I think about those? Well, I think, think they're very interesting. I think it's awesome that we're getting new characters all over again. I love, you know, I remember Guardians of the Galaxy. We had a lot of a lot of people had low expectations, and that might be one of the best MCU movies. So, The Eternals and Shang Chi. What did I say? I, what did I? What did I say? I was committing to. Yeah, I'm going to go with Shang Chi. Um, that's cool. We're getting some new characters now. Here's where my concern is, um, and this is where Star Wars ties in to this. Star Wars, A New Hope, Empire Strikes Back, and Return of the Jedi, there are cultural phenomenons. There are fixtures in the zeitgeist, if you will. It's 40 years after the release of the film, and even if they didn't make additional sequels or anything of that nature, those three films would still matter in a way. Uh, They would be known as the godfather of the summer blockbuster and technological advances and whatnot. Um... But as they started to create more Star Wars content, now I'm going to exclude the books and the comics because those are different mediums. Uh, But when they started to do the movies and TV shows for Star Wars, the prequels had an inherent problem other than mediocre acting, kind of a bad script and a lot of way too much blue screen. Um, The inherent problem with with the Star Wars prequels was that we knew where all of those characters ended up. Right, we knew where Obi Wan, Darth Vader, and Yoda, and the Emperor basically all ended up, and a lot of other Star Wars properties. For example, Solo and Rogue One. Uh, they're telling us Rogue One tells us the entire story about how A New Hope started with the stealing of the Death Star plans, and um, Solo tells us how Han met Chewie and Lando, and. What a lot of Star Wars films and TV shows have done uh, since the original three was they they tried to force feed us. Oh, here's Darth Vader. This is something new you did not know about Darth Vader. When the reality is, I feel like all that really matters that we know about Darth Vader is that he was Luke's father and now he's dead. Uh, we don't need to. You don't need to do what they call retconning, right? You don't need to do retro continuity, but they do. And that's how they tie it to the original source material. So I'm a little bit worried about Marvel phase four because, um, listen, if you haven't seen Endgame by now, you're not, you're not even my friend, but Black Widow is dead. Like vision is dead. Uh, The Loki story, I don't know when that's going to take place. I believe I heard the Hawkeye story is going to take place between 
Infinity War and Endgame. And I just, I worry that four or five of these Marvel properties out of the 10 that they announced is just going to try and add something to the snap, right? That's the moment, the Thanos snap and then the Tony snap. That's what we spent 20 some movies building towards. And now half of your live action slate for your next uh, for your next phase is really going to be prequels. I mean, can't you already imagine the moments of Black Widow, WandaVision, and Loki, where it's like, and here's why something else in those movies matters more. Listen, those movies are fine as is. I have very few questions about the Marvel Cinematic Universe that haven't been answered. They did a fantastic job crafting a story and filling in all the gaps as we went along. I don't know if I really need to go back in time. And like I said, in order to increase their importance, they're going to do something that's like, oh, and this is how this matches up with Thanos. Um, My other concern about the Doctor Strange film is the multiverse, the, the, you know, I think it's called Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. Now, this is not the first time we've heard the term multiverse, right? Spider-Man Far From Home, we heard it in the trailer. Uh, I did a whole podcast explaining, uh, at least briefly, what I thought was going to happen with the multiverse. Now, what I worry about with Doctor Strange is this, that the journey through the multiverse of madness is just going to be a quirky wink and nod of, wow, look at this. Wow, look at that. You know, we're going to we're going to stunt cast Brad Pitt as Captain America in, in another universe. Isn't that crazy, man? And we're going to drop hints towards uh, other spider people. But the whole idea of Doctor Strange in the multiverse could very well be that things are out of sorts. And at the end of the film, there will actually won't be any progress because the progress of the film would be him aiming to restore order, which would lower the stakes down to practically nothing. So that's my concern there. Uh, Thor, totally looking forward to that. I heard Korg's going to be back. One of my favorite characters in the MCU uh, I really look forward to seeing what they do with Chris Hemsworth. Is he going to become unworthy? Uh, I, I don't know how they're going to do that. Uh, but I really, really look forward to that idea. And then, of course, uh, we have Black Panther 2 and Guardians of the Galaxy to be determined. Uh, maybe those are 2022, 2023. Uh, and that could work, except for the fact that I'm I'm really still a little bit mad at Star-Lord. I don't know about you, but the events of Infinity War uh, made me... It spoiled me a little bit on on Star Lord. Um, you know, we could have stopped Thanos without all that death if he could have just kept his cool. Um, I guess we have, there's an interesting story to be told about Gamora and the alternate timeline Gamora uh, and how the Tony snap did wipe out Thanos and company, but maybe not Gamora because I do think she's back for the third one. Uh, I don't know where Nebula goes here. Uh and if, if 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 I believe I heard maybe Thor was going to be in Guardians of the Galaxy three, is that possible? Um, whatever the case is, yeah, Phase Four's got me interested, and but I will say that it's my uh, it, my expectations are lower than they've ever been because in a lot of ways, Endgame was kind of it for me. 
It's going to take a while to ramp me back up for, for some excitement. A lot of it's going to have to do with what, what Sony and Disney can agree upon with uh, Spider-Man. Uh, a lot of the future is also going to hinge on, are they rebooting X-Men? Are they rebooting Fantastic Four? I mean, the answer to those questions is yes. But like, when is that reboot going to happen? Who Who's going to be in it? I'm not 100% sure. So I'll be in there. I'll be there for Marvel. I don't miss those movies in the theater. And they haven't, they haven't disappointed me yet. I mean, it's Endgame, uh, the middle, I'm not all that interested in anymore. You know, I've tried to actually rewatch Endgame. And I'm actually really just most interested in the beginning and the end. I don't love the time travel, wink and nod stuff in the center. Because, again, that is the problem that phase four could be is, oh, look, you know, this whole time there was this going on. Or I just I don't want to see paradoxes created. Uh, and that's, again, it's not that it's a paradox, but Star Wars, the prequels, the prequels, which were supposed to answer questions, created more questions. And they didn't do so in a way that it was rewarding. Right. They. Midi-chlorians, what the heck happened to those things, you know? Uh, uh, there, there's so many different things that the prequels, they, where they created more questions and more inconsistencies of, well, why doesn't he remember that? Or why don't they, you know? So I just worry a little bit that the MCU could start to implode in on itself, especially without Captain America and Iron Man to anchor it. But if they can use Thor properly and they can assimilate uh, Peter Parker into an interesting role, which none of the movies I mentioned really probably are going to involve Peter Parker. Uh, so we're going to have a little bit of time away from him. I guess, and honestly, the next time we'll see him, Tom Holland as Spider-Man is probably Spider-Man 3. I don't know when Sony has that that planned. I, I do believe they announced that date. Maybe it was 21 or 22. Um, but are they still in with the Marvel Cinematic Universe or, or is that kind of over? Uh, I really do need Spider-Man to be involved in the Avengers for me to care about it. Uh, not, not. I would care about it, but but Spider-Man's my boy, right? That that's and that is the natural progression, unless of course they knock it out of the park with with X-Men. I was actually trying to fantasy cast X-Men the other day. Of course, everyone thinks that Fantastic Four should be uh, Jim Halpert from The Office. <laughs> Uh, as, as, uh, oh my goodness, the lead, Reed Richards, is that his name from the beginning of the Fantastic Four? Um, and his wife, Sue Storm. And they said, oh, just cast, uh, John Krasinski and Emily Blunt in those roles. And, you know, I don't know. Do you go out and get The Rock to play the thing? Or what other big guy do you go get? Um, but I mean, The Rock in the MCU would actually be pretty pretty good and he might play the thing really well Uh, that's just me kidding though uh you know the one name i do want to throw out there i want to put this on record right now is the character that played billy the actor that played the character billy in stranger things three really like that dude really like his look and i really think it would actually be interesting if if we got him lined up as wolverine uh, again, that may sound crazy, but um, I think that dude could play like an awesome Wolverine. He seems to have that that range, but he also has that rage, right? So 
uh, that's my uh, unofficial prediction of who eventually is going to play Wolverine. <laughs> and for part three here, it's actually kind of a combination of part one and part two, and it's talking a little bit more about movies. Uh, after I did that long run through of all the movies that were coming out, I actually went back and looked at a couple of things. Um, so uh, one, Ready or Not is not a period piece. <laughs> I had mentioned that's the film where uh, they're getting married to some sort of game, board game tycoon, uh, the, and the woman basically is hunted by the family, and because it was a rich family living in like a Victorian home with a lot of uh, ornate, old decor. I was like, oh, it's probably a period piece, but I've re-saw the trailer uh, before uh, Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, and they very clearly have cell phones. Uh, we had talked a little bit about Gemini Man, and I love the idea of, of Will Smith being de-aged. I'm definitely in for that. Uh, 21 Bridges with Chadwick, uh, with Chadwick Boseman. Uh, that looks really interesting, right? I just, that that's a guy... That's a guy that I really, uh, I want to see more of. Okay, I loved him, loved him in Black Panther, obviously. Uh, he's great in 42. He's outstanding. He plays the title role of Jackie Robinson. I'm all in on that. Uh, but the one thing I had heard from a friend was that I did not mention the upcoming film called Knives Out. Now, that was not intentional. Okay, I think I probably saw that title and thought it was just a throwaway action film. Didn't even click on it to see what it was about. Turns out it is Ryan Johnson's fifth or sixth feature film. And it's got quite the all-star cast. You're looking at Daniel Craig, who of course played James Bond. Chris Evans, who of course played Captain America. You've got Michael Shannon, who played General Zod. Sorry, these are... These are all like genre things, uh, but it's got a really good cast, and it's basically a it's a whodunit that a family gets together, and by the time that uh, you know the next day or whatever, long story short, somebody's dead, and these detectives come in and say, "We're going to figure out who did this." So um, a friend of mine said, "Oh, aren't you excited for that?" And the answer is maybe question mark. Uh, I went back and looked, and obviously I had massive problems with the Last Jedi. Um, I, I, you know, hated hated the Rose and Finn stuff. That's live action Clone Wars, mediocre stuff, not worthy of the saga. Uh, the underutilization of Laura Dern, and they just they made her character so unlikable. <sighs> the terrible story arc with Poe, uh, the confusing intentions of Kylo Ren. Uh, Ray was the only good part of that movie, right? Ray's awesome. The Daisy Ridley's awesome. The character, that's the arc that rocks. Um, but Ryan Johnson, I blame for a lot of the goofiness in that movie. And Ryan Johnson's done a couple other movies, including Looper, Brick, uh, the, Bl- the Brothers Bloom. Um, and yeah, is that it? Is that it? Is it? Are those his main movies? I got to look this up, I guess, huh? Um, Brick, The Brothers Bloom, Looper, Star Wars, Last Jedi, and Knives Out, right? Knives Out is his fifth feature film. That's it. And they're giving this guy a Star Wars franchise. I'm pulling out my hair. Um, basically, here's the thing. I don't think Ryan Johnson knows how to make movies. Sorry, Ryan. I don't. 
I, I think he is, he, maybe he knows how to direct movies and he doesn't know how to write them or he doesn't know how to direct movies that he writes uh, on all five movies. I just talked about, he was the writer and director. I think all of his movies in the final act crumble under the lofty expectations that he creates in act one and act two. And I think of all things, a whodunit where the whole movie is leading towards the end. This has disaster written all over it. I don't, I don't, I don't typically, you know what? Actually, I think I figured it out because Ryan Johnson did episodes of Breaking Bad. Like he did The Fly and like The Fly is one of the best Breaking Bad episodes there is, right? So I think Ryan Johnson just has no idea how to write, okay? I think I think he's probably a great director and he just doesn't know how to write at all. But the reality is Knives Out is written by Ryan Johnson, which means you're going to go see it and it's going to be really interesting and really clever and it's going to get a 72% or 79% or 83% on Rotten Tomatoes because the first two acts are solid. People are going to get to the third act and it's going to be the stupidest thing in the world. The same way that I think Brothers Bloom collapses, the same way I think Looper all of its most interesting elements are just gone by the end of the movie. It, 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 Last Jedi, which is just the worst Star Wars movie ever made. Um, yeah, yeah, yep. Knives Out is going to be terrible. So Mike Sal, my good friend, who uh, I appreciate all of your support. I have no interest in seeing Knives Out. With that said, I'm probably going to go see it to hate watch it, okay? I, I don't mean to... I do not mean to uh, uh, be so darn negative, <laughs> but um, yeah, my gosh, I hate Ryan Johnson. I, I can't believe I'm saying this on the podcast. I never, there's very few people I hate, but Ryan Johnson, man, he's on the list. He really is. He just, the dude doesn't know how to write movies. He's got to stop it. He's got to start trusting someone else. So uh, that is our insanely positive three count where, uh, yeah, (laughs) guys, let's talk about WWE SummerSlam and NXT. Ion Ryan is a proud member of the WePod squad. Don't forget to tune in this Friday for a new episode of We Podcast and We Know Things. And next week for MRC Tech Presents, The Last Podcast. So this past weekend was WWE SummerSlam. Uh, SummerSlam is one of WWE's big four events, right? In January, it is the Royal Rumble. In March or April, it is WrestleMania. In August, it is SummerSlam. And in November... It is Survivor Series, right? Those are the four big tent poles. This is the 32nd time that WWE has ever done SummerSlam, and it is the second time that they've done so in Toronto at that venue. Uh, The last one was back in 2004. So this was an exceptionally odd event. Uh, And what I mean by that is they had uh, 12 matches beginning to end, okay? Uh, Now, by comparison... WrestleMania had 16 matches. Now, we all know the way WrestleMania works, and if you don't, I'm going to go ahead and tell you, and that is everyone gets on WrestleMania, okay? This year's show was like eight hours long. Uh, SummerSlam came in 
at a, a very quick five and a half hours. Okay. But so it's very interesting to look at these two cards next to each other. So just real quick, WrestleMania 35, which happened in April, featured Tony Nese versus Buddy Murphy for the Cruiserweight Championship. Tony Nese did not perform at SummerSlam. Carmella won the uh, Women's Battle Royal at WrestleMania. Carmella uh, did not compete at SummerSlam. Kurt Hawkins and Zack Ryder defeated the Revival at WrestleMania. Those guys were not on the card for SummerSlam. Braun Strowman won the Andre the Giant Memorial Battle Royal, did not participate in SummerSlam. Seth Rollins defeated Brock Lesnar for the belt at Mania. He, spoiler alert, did so again last night at SummerSlam. That was a rematch. AJ Styles and Randy Orton squared off at WrestleMania. They both were on SummerSlam. Uh, Now, there was a multi-man match at uh, WrestleMania, which featured the Usos, not on SummerSlam. Alistair Black and Ricochet. Ricochet was on the show. Alistair Black was not. Rusev, Shinsuke Nakamura, and The Bar did not appear on SummerSlam. Shane McMahon defeated The Miz at WrestleMania. Shane was on the card. Miz was not. The Iconics fought The Boss and Hug Connection. Nia Jax, Tamina, Beth Phoenix, and Natalia. Now, uh, a lot of those women were on the card. The Iconics were on the card. Uh, Bailey was on the card. And Natalia was on the card. Obviously, Beth Phoenix is a, a legacy act, so she was kind of just there for WrestleMania. Um, Kofi Kingston defeated Daniel Bryan at WrestleMania for the belt. Uh, Daniel Bryan was not on the show. Samoa Joe versus Rey Mysterio. Again, neither one of those guys wrestled at SummerSlam after wrestling at WrestleMania. Roman Reigns defeats Drew McIntyre at WrestleMania. Not on the card at SummerSlam. Triple H defeats Batista. Neither one of those guys fought. Baron Corbin defeats Kurt Angle at WrestleMania. Neither one of those guys are on the card at SummerSlam. Uh, Finn Balor defeats Bobby Lashley. Bobby Lashley did not wrestle at SummerSlam. And the main event was Becky Lynch, Ronda Rousey, and Charlotte Flair at WrestleMania. Uh, Ronda Rousey is currently on a sabbatical from WWE. Uh, So what I'm getting at here is that for better or worse, a lot of WWE's top stars did not appear at SummerSlam. So uh, looking at the card from the top, starting with the pre-show, we have Drew Gulak and Oni Lorcan. Uh, Drew defeated Oni to, re, uh, excuse me, retain is the word I was looking for there, his cruiserweight championship belt. Now, I feel so bad for these cruiserweight guys. They are out there on an island on a program called 205 Live, which not very many people watch. It's filmed hastily after SmackDown tapings on Tuesday nights. Uh, but obviously that's changing with SmackDown going live on Friday nights on Fox. Will they record these shows before Raw on Monday? They're certainly not going to record them at 11 o'clock at night on Monday. Uh, so I don't know what's going to happen with 205 Live, but but I hope something does. Because I'll tell you this. Drew Gulak versus Oni Lorcan was an awesome match. These are two of the top competitors in the world. Just nobody cares about them because... They're not necessarily going to ascend the main card and win the WWE championship belt. 
there was a rumor slash theory going around a little while ago that maybe Daniel Bryan would go down to 205 Live to bring it some notoriety, uh, but that has not happened. Uh, Buddy Murphy and Apollo Crews ended in a disqualification. Uh, that was trying to further along the Rowan storyline, where apparently Rowan has attacked Roman Reigns. Uh, do we know if Daniel Bryan knows about that? I guess we'll find that out on Raw or SmackDown. Uh, and the final match of the pre-show was Alexa Bliss and Nikki Cross versus the Iconics for the Women's Tag Team Championships. Um Now, Nikki and uh, Alexa actually won those belts a few days earlier on Raw, and this was just a rematch. Uh, Alexa Bliss wore Buzz Lightyear. Oh, here we go. I'm not sure. You heard that? That was my Amazon Echo. Uh, But Miss Bliss wore uh, Buzz Lightyear ring gear, which is totally adorable. You can check out her Instagram. Um, But those are the pre-show matches. You know, you're not going to light the world on fire with those matches. Uh, So getting on to the main card, the match that kicked it off was Becky Lynch versus Natalia. Now, this is always a little bit difficult because Becky Lynch is the good guy and Natalia is the Canadian, right? They're in Toronto. So uh, believe it or not, There wasn't that many boos for Becky. The crowd was actually pretty evenly split. They love their hometown girl, but they also love the man. This was probably the right thing to do with uh, Becky Lynch going over Natalia. There was no reason for Natalia to win that belt. Uh, I would say that this was a 3.25 star match. I actually really did kind of enjoy it. I really like Becky and Natty's work. Now, what's hard is where the heck does Becky Lynch go from here? They kind of squandered that Lacey Evans feud. So I guess we'll find out on Raw or SmackDown if somebody's going to step up and challenge her. There's a good chance that when you listen to this, you'll know better than I do. Uh, But Becky could really use a new opponent. Uh, I I don't know what Nia Jax's status is right now. Um, I don't know if... If they're doing the whole tag team with Asuka and Kyrie Sane, so it's not going to be Becky versus Asuka. And I guess we already did that earlier in the year. Um, so, yeah, the only name I'm thinking that's coming to mind is if they can get Sasha Banks back from her sabbatical and actually let Sasha go full heel. Since Sasha's been on the main roster, that like boss character that she perfected down in NXT, she hasn't really gotten a chance to do it that that much on the main roster yet. So I guess we'll see what happens in the next couple of weeks and months. Uh, They could really do a rematch. I think the next thing that's coming up is like Clash of Champions. So you could do a grudge match or, uh, excuse me, an exhibition match between Becky and Bailey, champion versus champion. I wouldn't mind seeing that. I like those two girls. They're part of the four horsewomen of NXT. Uh, But, yeah, I'd really like to see Sasha come back. So that was a women's match. Really good. Um, Next up was Goldberg versus Dolph Ziggler. Now, this was one of the stranger matchups where I believe that basically Goldberg and The Undertaker, we saw The Undertaker wrestle next to Roman Reigns last month, They really wanted to make up for the stinker that they laid in Saudi Arabia. Those two guys were just way off their game. And the reality is they're both way past their prime. But I think that they wanted to have an opportunity 
to get back in the good graces with the audience. And obviously, The Undertaker did that when he teamed up with Roman Reigns. They did a great job. And believe it or not, I actually loved Goldberg and Ziggler here. Uh, never, never, I, I mean, I was a big Goldberg guy when I was a kid. I haven't liked him all that much as an adult because I understand his limitations as a performer. But beating up Dolph Ziggler is way different than beating up, let's say, Kevin Owens from a couple of years ago, or if for some reason they matched him up against, you know, a Bray Wyatt or a Finn Balor. I mean, Dolph Ziggler's the kind of guy who could retire any day now. Earlier this year, I thought Dolph Ziggler was retired and he was working backstage or going to do something else. I mean, the guy had a very interesting run in WWE. He probably never really lived up to his potential. And that's okay. Not everyone has to be a Hall of Famer, which uh, ironically, I think almost everyone on this card will be a Hall of Famer, but we'll save that for another podcast. Uh, So the Goldberg-Dolph Ziggler segment was pretty good. Uh, Basically, Dolph got in a little bit of early offense, and then Goldberg took over the match. After the match, Dolph Ziggler basically begged for a beating and Goldberg acquiesced to it. (laughs) And I kind of enjoyed that. This is a really good spot to use a legend. Like I said, you're not burying an up and comer. You're getting a decent pop from the crowd. Uh, I've learned from wrestling uh, that the second match on the card is like one of the hardest matches to be in. And I think that they did a, a pretty good job of putting Goldberg and Ziggler here. And I think the crowd enjoyed it. I know I enjoyed it. So uh, next up is AJ Styles with Carl Anderson and Luke Gallows, the OC, the original club, taking on the superhero incarnate. That's not his nickname, but it's something like that. Ricochet. So Ricochet came out wearing some sort of Nightwing cosplay uh, and AJ Styles, the champion, retained in this match. Now, these are two guys that are... Uh, with all due respect, probably at opposite ends of their career. While I think only about 15 years separates them in age, uh, which I guess only is a relative term in wrestling, um, AJ Styles has been doing this nonstop for for a long time, and Ricochet's just hitting the main roster schedule, right? In WWE, before you get to WWE, you usually wrestle two or three times in a weekend, which is... 12 times approximately a month, which means, yeah, I mean, I guess you could be doing uh, 144 shows a year, but not many guys do. Once you get on to main roster WWE, your schedule is basically four or five days a week, 52 weeks a year, wrestling over 200 matches. It's a lot of wear and tear to put on your body. So uh, even if their age isn't that far apart necessarily, it was really interesting to see AJ Styles versus Ricochet. And it was really cool to see it, too, uh, because I don't know how much longer AJ's going to be around for. When he signed his last WWE deal, he said it was his last deal he was signing. So I'm glad we got to see two of like the most high-octane, explosive professional wrestlers go at it while uh, they still got some some stuff left in the tank there. So I'm really happy with that match. And, uh, yeah, AJ Styles, uh, the ending, you kind of have to see it to believe it. Uh, for those of you that don't want to hear it, just skip forward about, you know, 25 seconds, 15 seconds. But basically AJ Styles was doing a top rope maneuver and 
excuse me, Ricochet was doing a top rope maneuver and AJ Styles called him and gave him the Styles Clash. That doesn't even remotely do it justice. I'll probably retweet the gif if I get a chance. Um, next up was Bailey versus Ember Moon. This match went basically exactly 10 minutes. And uh, I'm going to tell you the God's honest truth. My friends and I skipped it because we were 10 minutes behind because we were going back and watching the AJ Styles and Ricochet match. Uh, we also paused a couple times, but we wanted to see that finish. We fell behind. We just skipped over the match. Uh, I'm happy Bailey's champion right now. Uh, it wasn't the right time for Ember Moon to win the belt, but uh, SmackDown, SmackDown could use Sasha. Honestly, maybe even more so than Raw, because Becky's entertaining. She can make, she can make any feud entertaining. But I think Bailey really needs someone to tango with. And maybe the best women's wrestling match I've ever seen in my life was Bailey versus Sasha at Brooklyn Takeover in NXT. I don't know if that was Takeover Two or Takeover One in Brooklyn, but. Yeah, that's my favorite women's match ever. So hopefully Bailey gets a competitor, and hopefully they are, they're able to rebuild Ember Moon. She's one of those women that I wouldn't hate if she left the company. She's so extraordinarily talented, uh, but it just feels like that that belt's going to get passed between Bailey and Charlotte and Lacey Evans and Becky and Alexa Bliss for the next however many years. So I don't even know if there's really enough gold to go around for Ember Moon. I don't know if I want to see her put into a tag team, uh, but we'll see what happens with them going forward. Uh, Kevin Owens and Shane McMahon. Goodness gracious. Thank goodness that Kevin Owens is still employed by the WWE. Uh, in this match, the stipulation was that Kevin Owens would quit if Shane McMahon defeated him, Shane McMahon did his best to stack the odds in his favor by bringing out Elias, who uh, ended up being a non-factor after he was neutralized by Kevin Owens. Uh, you know what? You know what bothered me the most about this match is that Shane didn't put anything on the line. That that always drives me crazy when they ask our heroes to risk everything, and our villains would just get a loss that that didn't matter necessarily, but I hope this is the beginning of the end for Shane. I think what they were really trying to do with this whole Shane McMahon, Kevin Owens gimmick was I think that they were trying to recreate Stone Cold Steve Austin versus Vince McMahon. But I mean, that was lightning in a bottle. They actually literally gave Kevin Owens the stunner um, to try and, you know, recapture that Stone Cold magic. But the other thing, I've heard that Kevin Owens is working without a script at all. Um, I mean, he can't say whatever he wants out there, but that he's not really working with the writing, or maybe, excuse me, he is working with the writing team, but he's creating a lot of his own content, the same way that Stone Cold Steve Austin once did. I don't think that this put KO over in a way that's similar to Stone Cold Steve Austin, um, but it, it certainly didn't hurt him. Okay, he beat Shane McMahon relatively decisively, and hopefully that's just the end of this feud. Hopefully Shane takes a back seat and isn't out there wrestling. Hopefully Kevin moves on to greener pastures, whatever that may be. Uh, next up, we have Charlotte Flair versus Trish Stratus, uh, two of the most lovely athletic women uh, to ever ever wrestle in WWE, they just happen to be separated by a generation, right? Trish has been out of the ring for several years now. She's come back here and there, but Charlotte's at the top of her game, and 
I will say that they gave this match just way too much time. This is the second longest match on the entire card coming in at 16 minutes and 40 seconds. And I got really bored here. Uh, I mean, they did a good job, but it felt inevitable. No, predictable. The Charlotte Flair was going to beat Trish Stratus. It would have been absurd if she didn't. Now, with that said, it's a really nice notch to put in Charlotte's belt. You know, I neutralized Trish Stratus. I finished Trish Stratus. Uh, that's cool, I guess. But 16 minutes for somebody that barely wrestles is just, it's just too much. And in so many ways, I'd have to go back and watch the match. It really felt like Charlotte just kicked her butt for like... 13 or 14 of those 16 minutes. It was almost uncomfortable to watch at times. Uh, Next up is another match that just went way, way, way too long, especially for the finish. Kofi Kingston versus Randy Orton ends in a double countout, a WWE championship match at SummerSlam that went almost 17 darn minutes, ends with no finish. I mean, what are you thinking when when you when you decide on this finish for this match? I mean, I hate Randy Orton. He Randy Orton, Ryan Johnson, and and the morning host here in Philadelphia, Angelo Cataldi. Those three people are three of my least favorite people on the planet. Um, and and, and oh my goodness gracious, uh, Randy Orton getting another championship match. As long as he didn't win, that was okay. I didn't want to see him as a as a champion as a champion ever again. But you do a 17 minute match, 50 50 booking between Kofi and Randy. They're each getting their stuff in. They 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 brawl. They it's just and it ends in a double countout. Like you better blow this feud off on Tuesday and just say, ah, it was a mistake to put Randy in this spot. Don't give me two or three more pay-per-views of this because then I'm going to get increasingly worried that Randy Orton's going to win. Uh, Kofi is, is they're showing their problem that WWE always has. They had this same problem with Rollins, and we'll get to that in a few minutes. They had this problem with Becky. They had this problem with CM Punk back in the day. They had this problem with Daniel Bryan when he was a good guy and won the belt. Some of the most, some of the worst and most boring booking for these champions happens once they uh, once they win the belt. Once the journey's over, we totally lose the ability in WWE to tell the story that these guys are are you know credible champions, and you gotta you're you're they're overcoming these incredibly difficult threats. I mean, they put Seth Rollins in a feud with. Baron Corbin, like from Mania until SummerSlam, right? I mean, am I missing anything in there? Um, Kofi Kingston, I don't know. Did he feud again with Daniel Bryan? I don't even remember. Oh, Samoa Joe, I guess. But like, yeah, it's just Kofi Kingston's boring now. And it's not even his fault. It's just they don't have a credible threat. Honestly, you just don't want people to win because... You don't want to see them as champion. Not that you want to. It's not that you even want to see Kofi beat them. If that makes sense. Like I said, sh- Becky is going through the same problem with no Ronda Rousey around. With Charlotte having won the belt way too many times, they ended up having Becky versus Natalia, which is cool for a hometown thing. But nobody cares about Natalia, and and, and nobody 
fans still like Randy Orton. I just personally don't. But this match for 17 minutes, a double count out, thus guaranteeing us how many more rematches, a little bit of a bummer. But uh, let's put that aside because the final two matches, they, they, they knocked my socks off. The Fiend, Bray Wyatt, defeated Finn Balor. Now, uh, here's a funny thing. There's rumor going around that Finn Balor wants to take off for a little while. Uh, maybe he wants to get married. Maybe he wants to heal up his body. Maybe he's regretting signing with WWE entirely and trying to figure out how he can go back to AEW or New Japan. Um, but Finn Balor's taking some time off, which means that uh, he was definitely going to lose this match. But the other side of that coin is Bray Wyatt, debuting his brand new character, was definitely going to win this match. So this ended up being a good matchup. I'm so glad that they didn't do the Demon versus the Fiend. Uh, For those of you that don't know, Bray Wyatt basically has this horrifying mask. Um, And it was really cool. Finn Balor was not the Demon last night. Bray Wyatt made his first ring entrance uh, to a remix of his old music, which his old music was awesome. New music, just as good. He came out with the lantern, but around the lantern was this wax version of the old Bray Wyatt face. It almost looks like that he decapitated Bray Wyatt and shoved a lantern in his mouth. It was really freaky looking. And, uh, of course, he's got the kind of New 52 Joker-inspired mask where it looks like he cut off someone's face and then tied it back to his face. It's a really cool gimmick that Bray's got going on right now. The look is fantastic. The ring entrance was great. I was shocked that he wrestled with the mask on. I thought he was going to take the mask off, but the fact that this guy's going to wrestle with this mask on, it changes the dynamic of the character entirely, and I love it. Uh, I am a little worried that he's going to like fight Kane at WrestleMania 36 next April and lose, but if he doesn't, Bray Wyatt could finally get the WWE uh, championship match that he deserves and the championship run that he deserves. Um I guess intrinsically he's just going to be a bad guy because you can't have someone that looks that evil be a good guy. But the crowd ate him up, and I think they actually did a really good job. Sometimes I'm a stickler for production, like, oh, it's so goofy that they did that. Uh, But I actually really enjoyed the production with the turning out the lights, the slow let him in on the screen. Um, I love that when the lights go out, they do the power generator sound effect. Like lights don't really make that noise, but I love that they use that to really kind of hammer it home that it's creepy, right? Uh, Only thing I didn't love, it's it's not even that I didn't love. This is just a WWE thing where nobody said like that is incredible. Like the announcers were just – they were saying, that's the scariest thing I've ever seen, which it was. It was one of the scariest things I've ever seen. But they should have been like real adults and been, well, that's the scariest thing I've ever seen. That's so cool. Or that's so interesting. Or that's so amazing. And not act like that he really beheaded someone. Like, that's goofy, man. That takes me out of it. Just, just basically be like, whoa, Bray Wyatt is a psycho. Do you see that lantern that he had made? Like, that would be... That would be cooler. 
you know, let us know that you're a grown adult and you understand that Bray Wyatt didn't behead someone. Okay. Like recognize that that that's, that's decoration. That's an intimidation factor. However you want to frame it. Just, I hate it that the announcers were so like, Oh gee golly, I'm afraid of him. Uh, cause he's supernatural. Don't make, don't make Bray Wyatt supernatural. Make him a psychopath. I prefer that. Finn Balor, enjoy vacation, buddy. Um, and the final match of the night was Seth Rollins versus Brock Lesnar. Uh, this was a rematch from WrestleMania, but you know what? It was a ver- it was a way better version of the WrestleMania match. If you remember at Mania, Lesnar beat the crap out of Rollins, and Rollins won basically with like a low blow or something. It was so goofy. It totally betrayed everything that Seth Rollins stands for. Uh, so they got it right this time. And Seth Rollins and Brock Lesnar put on a fantastic match. Say what you will about Brock, but when you give the guy some time and he's totally invested, he's the top five wrestler in the company. Uh, I know maybe he's a little bit of a one-trick pony, but all professional wrestlers are. He, he's brute strength. He's the beast incarnate. He is horrifying. He's intimidating. He's a powerhouse. Brock Lesnar is the man. And I really just, I really wish that he would sign a 26 week schedule and stay on the road for eight weeks and then sprinkle in the other 18 appearances as it relates to pay-per-view matches and so on and so forth. But Brock Lesnar is the man uh, when it comes to, to being a big guy, an intimidating guy. And then he got CrossFit, CrossFit Jesus on the other side in Seth Rollins. Uh, Seth Rollins got into a little bit of hot water a month or so ago, a little bit longer, I guess, where he said something along the lines about how him and WWE are the best wrestlers in the world. And in some ways that's true, and in other ways it's not. You know, they, yeah, they have a really grueling schedule, and yeah, they're the best athletes. Uh, some of them, I mean, Rollins is a top five athlete on the planet for wrestlers right now. Um, he's a top five wrestler on the planet in terms of ability, but his storylines suck. I mean, he wrestled Baron Corbin for three months or whatever. Like, so Will Ospreay from New Japan Professional Wrestling, who's having a heck of a year, basically wrote to Rollins and was like, yeah, well, you can think that, but I'm still alive. So you're not the best wrestler on the planet. Uh, to which Rollins replied something snarkily about his bank account because I guess he thinks that indie guys and New Japan guys don't get paid anything compared to him. And, hey, maybe that's true. Uh, but that, that left me a little bit soured on Rollins for a second. But last night's performance and me thinking on it a little bit more uh, really brought me back to Rollins. I mean, at the end of the day, this guy probably has a two, three, five, six-year contract with WWE. You don't want your WWE Universal Champion, the locker room, one of the locker room leaders, uh, one of the top guys in all of professional wrestling and surely one of the top guys in WWE. You don't want him going on Twitter and just being like, yeah, it sucks. Yeah, I hate it. Like, he's standing up for his brand. He's standing up for his job. He probably loves what he does. Yeah, does he think some of the storylines are a little goofy? Sure. But which one of you guys are really going into your job and being like, everything here's the best? No. Dude, I, I, I'm a boss and I'm an employee, right? I own my own company, but I also work under a lot of people. 
and everyone always has something to say. Like I said, I hear it all the time. Like, oh, I really wish you know it was the boss. You'd do this or do that or whatever. And I'm sure Seth thinks the same thing about Vince. Darn Vince, I wish you would just do this or do that. But uh, Rollins is a WWE guy. Probably will be a WWE guy till the end of his career. So uh, I respect that he stood up for the company, and I respect that him and Brock put on a 13-minute match. That was awesome. Uh, what's next for Rollins? I don't know. I mean, you do go right into him and Bray. You got you got a baby face in Seth Rollins who overcame the odds and and beat beat Brock Lesnar, uh, and you got a really evil guy in Bray Wyatt. You just put those two together. I'm not sure. Because, like I said, we'll find out on Raw, which a lot of you have already seen. So go ahead, fill me in what happened. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. All right, that's enough of that gimmick. So all in all, I think SummerSlam was pretty good. Um, Despite the fact that it didn't have Braun Strowman, Bobby Lashley, Baron Corbin, Lacey Evans... Sami Zayn, Nakamura, Roman Reigns, Daniel Bryan, any tag teams, Andrade, Ray, Drew, Samoa Joe. Despite the fact that it didn't have any of those guys, it was actually a pretty good card. Now, where WWE seems to be suffering the most, uh, you know, they have record they have record breaking revenue right now. Uh, their stock is higher now than it's ever been. The problem is, it just their ratings don't jive with that. They seem to be struggling with their week-to-week programming, uh, but I believe that that's going to change soon. Okay, fingers crossed. And that is the influence of Paul Heyman and Eric Bischoff, I think, is going to change some things. And uh, I think WWE is suffering right now because they're going through a little bit of a holding pattern. What I mean by that is when they start on Fox in October, which is, believe it or not, just about six weeks away. Uh, I think they want to have a fresh start. See, so what's going to happen, in case you don't realize this, is Monday Night Raw is still going to be Monday Night Raw, and it's still going to be on the USA Network. But SmackDown Live is going to move from Tuesdays to Friday nights. It's going to be live, and it's going to be broadcast on Fox. Now, that's massive for the WWE. If you have a television and you have any type of cable or satellite or anything hooked up to it, you get Fox, which means this is the biggest audience WWE is ever going to reach in the United States, which is crazy to say, but they have unlimited potential. Fox, the way that they promote their shows during the NFL, which everyone watches, you know, they say, oh, coming up tonight on The Simpsons or whatever. You don't think Fox is going to have something that's like, oh, this past week on SmackDown or, oh, it's halftime. Oh, Roman Reigns is in the studio. Uh, Yeah, there's going to be a lot of synergy there. Uh, And WWE is going to be loosely associated with the NFL in a way through their Fox partnership. And I think they're in a little bit of a holding pattern because they don't want the first couple of episodes of SmackDown to require months or years or even weeks worth of knowledge, right? I think they're just kind of treading water. I think that's why they left Braun Strowman and Roman Reigns and Daniel Bryan off of this show because I think they're going to tell new stories with those guys in October. So 
I think they're just kind of treading water. Their next pay-per-view is the uh, Clash of Champions. So that's probably going to be a lot of champion versus championship matches, or it's going to be a lot of uh, one-off type things where no belts are really going to change hands, I don't think. Uh, unless, of course, they do one last course correction before they get to Fox. Um, but I really firmly believe in six weeks when WWE goes to Fox, they're going to up the ante. They're going to raise the bar. And they're going to try to recapture all of those fans that they've lost in the past 20 years. In addition to that, two days prior to WWE's uh, debut on Fox, AEW will be debuting on the cable network, TNT. Uh, So we are in a good old-fashioned war here, folks, where the juggernaut that is WWE has some competition for the first time ever. Now, they've got a leg up on them in almost every possible way. Uh, The only thing that that AEW has that WWE doesn't is a fresh slate. And AEW has been knocking it out of the park. They do a weekly series called uh, Road to Blank. Road to All Out, All In, whatever. Whatever their next big pay-per-view is. And the content they're producing there for AEW is just truly fantastic. Uh, I can't recommend it enough. Watch the first and second and third episode. The fourth episode is pretty good, but it's... The first, second, and third really got me excited about AEW. And I think WWE knows that. I think that they know that there's a lot of people out there that once watched wrestling and no longer do. And AEW is looking to bring them back. And I think once WWE hits Fox and they're more accessible than ever and they're more marketed than ever, I think they're trying to bring those fans back too, right? They, they want to say, okay, yeah, we can we can get back to 5 million or 10 million or whatever it was, and it's heyday, that many people watching us. So I think there's a lot of hope to be had. And like I said, SummerSlam, they didn't do anything. that They didn't fire Kevin Owens. They didn't have Trish beat Charlotte. They didn't give the belt to Randy Orton. They, they didn't keep the belt on Brock. Uh, they did all the right things at SummerSlam that they're not in a hole right now. This is the closest they've been to even ground in a long time. They got a lot of great champions right now in WWE, right? I love the WWE champion in Kofi Kingston, Universal champion in Seth Rollins. The tag belts are uh, on the club and the New Day, respectively. Uh, Alexa Bliss and Nikki Cross are two great characters. So they are, my, uh, my echo, of course, lit up. She gonna say something? Nope. Okay. Um, yeah, we we've got some great characters right now. Uh, wrestlers holding the titles. I think that's. I think it's gonna stay that way for the next six weeks, and I think they're gonna hit the ground running on Fox. And I really hope that through competition and opportunity, WWE reaches heights they've never reached before. Right. As much as I don't like Vince McMahon and some of the decisions he's made, I also understand that he's just a business owner who maybe he's gotten complacent or cocky. I mean, like I said, I own my own business and every now and then I have to recognize that I have my own shortcomings and that I have to reevaluate things. And I get the opportunity to do that when I have a fresh slate and my work is seasonal. So uh, like right now, I'm saying I need to do this better. I need to do this better. I need to do this better. And hopefully Vince has that come to Jesus moment uh, where he says, you know what? I really, really, really have to do X, Y, and Z better. 
You know, I really have to push myself in this way once we get to Fox. So I do think there's a light at the end of the tunnel for the repetitiveness that that has happened with WWE. Um, And I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. Just real quick, because I think I promised this earlier in the show, um, NXT happened the night before SummerSlam, and uh, the Street Profits defeated Undisputed Era. Uh, representing Undisputed Era was Kyle O'Reilly and Bobby Fish, two of my favorite guys. Uh, Street Profits, for as amazing as they are on Raw, definitely still have some work to do in the ring. I think this was actually one of the weaker matches on the show, which is kind of surprising. Um, cause usually the tag match that opens the show steals the, it's, it's usually the best match of the weekend. Uh, but street profits have some work to do. I don't think that they did a terrible job, uh, but they won here. They kept the belts, which is really interesting considering the fact that they're up on, on raw on a weekly basis, promoting things. Um, the next match I texted some friends and said, am I, am I crazy for thinking this, that. Uh, I believe her name is pronounced Io Shirai versus Candice LeRae. By the way, embarrassing thing here. I love wrestling and I love comic books and I love movies and I love people in general. The one thing that I suck at is people's names. I just kind of like, if I see, yeah, whatever the case is, I think her name's Io Shirai. If I ever mispronounce a name on here, just laugh at me and be like, Ion Ryan, you're so stupid. Um, so, uh, she won the match. Io Shirai did over Candice LeRae with a submission. It was a 15 minute long match and it rocked. Like I said, maybe the match of the weekend, those women, uh, Candice LeRae, dude, what a star that woman is. I mean, she is so talented. I cannot wait to experience her journey. Uh, from NXT to the main roster to becoming the women's champion because she is one of the most likable professional wrestlers on the planet right now. She lost this match to a formidable opponent, a woman who is also going to be an absolute star. Next match on the card was Velveteen Dream, Pete Dunne, and Roderick Strong. These three men are outstanding. Velveteen Dream, I can't even wrap my head around how cool he is. He just, he has such a fantastic gimmick. And this match was, again, awesome. I mean, these guys know how to do it. I love Pete Dunne, even though he needs a little bit of a haircut right now. And Roderick Strong is one of the most underrated wrestlers because he kind of just has a very, uh, a very simple look, right? He just, he doesn't have crazy long hair. He doesn't have a crazy gimmick. So a lot of times people forget how good he is. Uh, But that triple threat match for the NXT North American championship was was really, really good. And if it it didn't share a card with that women's match, uh, it would have been the match of the night. Uh, Next up is Shayna Baszler and Mia Yim. Uh, uh, Shayna Baszler won by submission. I, I don't even know what to say anymore. I think Shayna is a really cool character, and I think she's going to rock on the main roster. But um, I'm over her. And uh, Mia Yim, who I love, uh, she's come up small again, in my opinion. I, I mean, I'm talking like she just wasn't crisp in this match. And the same thing kind of happened in her one May Young Classic match where she just – 
didn't look very good. I don't know. I, I hope she works it out. I haven't seen much of her work in NXT. Um, but, yeah, that was probably my least favorite match of the night. That, that's, But that's not even a knock. I mean, they did a nice job. And then the main event was a best two out of three falls match between Adam Cole and Johnny Gargano. And as you would imagine, these gentlemen tore each other apart. First match was a uh, basically a straight-up wrestling match. Uh, second match was a no disqualification match. I guess it was. Oh my goodness. My brain is, is, isn't working. Uh, and then the final match was not only a steel cage match, but it was a steel cage match where there was no escape. You had to actually win by pinfall or submission. And the top of the steel cage, uh, was garnished by barbed wire as well as weapons And that's when things really heated up. This match went over 45 minutes. And yes, the first two, uh, the first two falls were really good. But the third fall when they were in the cage, oh man, they tore each other up. What a great job by these two guys. Uh, Adam Cole, you know, he could be Adam Cole and Johnny Gargano. Uh, that would be a great WrestleMania main event. It really would. Those two dudes know how to battle it out. Their characters are always incredibly stellar. Uh, so that was NXT. And and if you do not watch NXT, you are missing out on the second or third best wrestling on the planet. Uh, I always go back and forth. For a while there, I was out of New Japan. Once the once the elite left, once Cody Rhodes and the guys that are now AEW left, I stopped watching New Japan. But I recently watched their G1 tournament, G1 Climax, and I was like, "Yep, New Japan Pro Wrestling, best wrestling on the planet. They're truly outstanding." If if you've never watched New Japan, you can go to their website, New Japan. NJ NJPW right New Japan Pro Wrestling World.com I think it is you can actually watch some free matches watch anything with Okada in it and you are going to be absolutely blown away uh, ditto on Will Ospreay and depending on your styles you might want to watch Zack Sabre Jr. or Minoru Suzuki um Tanahashi's a good guy. A lot of people like Naito, even though I I don't really. Um, but there is some massive talent in New Japan Pro Wrestling. So in terms of a complete product, NXT is 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 one or two or three on that list, uh, and they exceed WWE in my opinion. They just tell such good stories, and their matches are are truly outstanding. So that's a wrap up on the professional wrestling weekend. Thank you for listening to the Iron Ryan show. Ryan will return in two weeks with another episode. Connect with Ryan on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter by searching username Iron Ryan. Uh, grandpa's in.